Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by me and my book I've done, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon or you can get the audio book, which I think you're going to enjoy listening to in your car or your train. It might not be your train unless you're the Queen, in which case it is your train or maybe your shareholder in self. Look, I don't want to get bogged down. You can get it on Audible. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Tony Howard is a professor of English at Warwick University and writes about performance in its social and political context. His book, Women as Hamlet, includes studies of the shifting relationship of Shakespeare, culture and gender in many societies and ideological situations. His work includes leading the Multicultural Shakespeare Project, which focuses on the relationship between race and Shakespeare in modern Britain and on the achievements of black and Asian artists working on the plays. Thanks for coming here, Tony. Thank you. We've worked together before, of course, on a, a week at the National Theatre where we took various Shakespeare monologues and I tried to uh, use them to tell a psychological and biographical story, well, specifically an autobiographical story, <laughs> using the works of Shakespeare to talk about my own life. I was struck that in preparation for uh, for this week of rehearsal and workshopping, you reread Shakespeare in its entirety, thus doing more work in preparation for that one event on Shakespeare than I'd ever done. Well, I am paid to do that sort of thing as a university professor. I see, so it was no great hardship for you. Did you discover anything, <laughs> on, on, on that rereading of the works of Shakespeare, did you discover anything new? Well, I did. The reason why I did it uh, was because I knew that you were making um, uh, a project about Shakespeare. And I'd been given the headlines that you were interested in what Shakespeare might have to say about parenting and about addiction. And I, I instantly said, oh, well, parenting, that's perfect. Um, because Shakespeare, in almost all of his plays, um, is showing you how not to be a parent. OK, you could be a king, uh, you could be a peasant, whatever it is, you will completely try to screw up your child. And you'll have huge success at that. So that was no problem. Um, but addiction, I found more difficult because it didn't instantly jump out to me that Shakespeare writes about that sort of thing, um, which I sort of had, a, had conceived as being like drug addiction or addiction to tobacco or something like that. Um, so I had to read through a whole lot of texts um, in order to try and find out where that connection might be. Um, but there's nothing more enjoyable than ploughing through the complete works of Shakespeare. So it was a great privilege. When you uh, looked at addiction as analogous to obsession, ha ha that then surely it becomes completely different reading. Yes, yeah, um, because uh, it, it took me some time to go to make that connection. Um, but there is a huge amount in Shakespeare about obsession. I mean... Um, I hope you don't mind if I sort of pepper this conversation with references to particular plays or performances. Well, um, difficult if we forbid it, Tony. Yeah, OK. Trying okay. to illuminate people on Shakespeare, Shakespeare's relevance to modern audiences and how Shakespeare reflects the relationships, uh, the social cultural relationships as they evolve and develop. I mean, what I'm fascinated by in particular is the way that you've studied how Shakespeare relates to race, how Shakespeare relates to gender, because it seems to me that you see the work of Shakespeare as some sort of uber template for the human 
human condition. I do, which is, yeah. So that's what I'm interested in. So please, yeah, yeah. do mention yeah. the plays so, so, and so, so, that. So, Don't try and do it in code. <laughs> <laughs> so to give you an obsession, I'm thinking about Richard III, okay? Mm. Um, there is a figure who is the kind of the dark shadow inside all of us. Um, his only compulsion is to achieve power and to humiliate as many human beings in the process as he can. Um, and the way Shakespeare kind of shows that is to give him, at the start of the play, um, a pirouette through certain kinds of relationships. So what he does is he comes up to a woman called Lady Anne whose um, husband he's murdered, and he woos her over a coffin. Mm. And at the beginning of that, she is full of anger and hatred. By the end of it, he's been successful in seducing her. And it's kind of showing off what, what willpower can actually achieve if it's totally focused. So as a result of that, we know that he's going to be very successful. He's going to achieve anything he wants. Uh, he's going to stamp over a dozen bodies at least. And in fact, he then, Shakespeare then shocks us by having him stamp over the bodies of children. Mm. Because we can all say, OK, we'll, we'll kind of empathise with the, the trickster, the jester, even the devilish character. Um, we know that he's acting out sort of terrible impulses, which we feel. And we get a kind of a, uh, uh, an ejection of pleasure from feeling we can criticise it, but we're also along there with him. But when it comes to killing children, which happens several times in Shakespeare, it's wrenching your guts and you're forced to decide how far I'm going to go along with this. What's very interesting is that then we find out that obsession isn't just about success. It's about self-entrapment and destruction. So at the end of the play, Richard III, who is now the king, um, has to replay that seduction scene. He d There's another woman who, uh, who is the Queen of England and she's got a daughter um, who he wants to marry. Um, so he has to go through the same thing. He says the same words, has the same reactions. Um, but this time, um, he doesn't get the success he wants. So that, I think that's an example of the way that human behaviour um, is taken into areas that we don't normally experience by Shakespeare. But sooner or later, we'll find that there are limits and we're trapped by who we are. And even if you set out to break all the rules, um, to break every taboo, um, to be uh, obscene, um, you're going to destroy yourself in the process, and it will be a very undramatic process. It seems, from listening to you, Tony, that Shakespeare is necessarily dealing in archetypes and energies that are always present in human psyche. I suppose that's an obvious point to make because otherwise Shakespeare wouldn't have been relevant at the time he was writing or relevant now. When you take, just because it's come up, a character like Richard III, the archetype of the tyrant, the sort of a damaged malcontent, and for me that seems like an emblem and a figure that is... Uh, relevant now it seems like that this is a fractured and disrupted time maybe it's always been like that maybe that's an observation people mm -hmm. continually make but i'm referring of course specifically to uh like donald trump brexit times of malevolence severance and rupture do you when you're relating to the contemporary world use shakespeare the same way that people might look at 
a, a religious text like the Bible or Quran or whatever and say, oh my God, these ideas are explored here because he is talking about the totality of a human being and all situations ultimately pass through the human psyche. I don't know, weather yeah. and... Cool, yeah, cool exactly. Vision. I mean, that's, that's what um, I think Shakespeare has become. Um, you know, every country, perhaps, um, has a kind of core text that's really important to it. Um, and in many cases, that will be a religious text or a philosophical text or a, a, a political creed. Um, I think in many ways, Shakespeare has become that for us, mm. potentially, um, for the English, you mean, or for, for all English-speaking people? I, I mean, for English culture at its best, uh, Shakespeare shows you how to live your life, which is that um, there is no dogma in Shakespeare, OK? Um, some of his plays, like Richard III, let's stick with that for a second, um, he's an evil man and he's overthrown at the end by the first of the Tudor monarchs and um, Shakespeare is writing in a Tudor dynasty. Um, so you can see it as propaganda, OK? Um, but actually, the moment you start li listening to the words that the new Tudor king speaks, you begin to doubt it. Um, we're lucky, I, I, I think, um, to have such a phenomenal dramatic text at the heart of our culture, um, because that means that the, the writer is not imposing a perspective. His job is to be as complete and diverse as he possibly can. I suppose because his function is to tell a story rather than to impose an ideology. But there is always a corollary between story and character and between character and essence. Mm -hmm. I remember when we spoke before, um, you said that the tempest is in many ways the, I don't know, the denouement, the completion, a sort of, and this is it, the completion of mm. Shakespeare. Uh, so from, from reading that text and from obviously your familiarity with all of his work, uh, would you maintain that there is not an ideology, that there is not a dogma, or, or I suppose there's a distinction between ideology and dogma? Yeah, that the, the, the Tempest is great from that point of view because it shows you that we all have inbuilt compulsions, one of which is that will to power. OK, here's this wonderful magic island, and we said this before, uh, the moment you set foot on that island, you want to be its king. And as a result of that, you're prepared to kill somebody to achieve control over that potential utopia. Okay. And it's a utopia which is in touch with magic, which is very important because it's, um, it's a political place, but also it's a spiritual place mm -hmm. where anything is possible, where the mind can be free. But although we see that compulsion, um, we see others as well. We see um, that there's a, a parenting compulsion in that play. There's a, 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 the, the island is ruled by Prospero, the magician, um, who, who has was two... shipwrecked there. Will you just tell the, briefly the story? Because uh, I make a particular effort mm -hmm. to make this podcast accessible to idiots. I mainly do it by being one, but, <laughs> I, but I also do it by sometimes filling the gap. So in, uh, in The Tempest, of which there's been a very good film version made, uh, the, the character of Prospero is uh, shipwrecked on an island. Fine, and you take it from yeah, me. He used, to, he, he used to be a duke. Um, he's an intellectual, and so he's uh, a poor governor in Italy. He's overthrown by his brother. Um, he's cast ashore um, with his daughter and, and, and finds his way to this magic island um, where he rules the spirits through the, in the, 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 the keys to magic and science um, that he's found in his books. Mm. Um, by a peculiar chance, 
um, the uh, political and family uh, enemies that he has find themselves cast onto his island too. Um, he conjures up a, a, a storm um, to shipwreck them. And then it's all about how, how committed to revenge he is going to be. Mm -hmm. But in the process, he also wants to marry his daughter off. So there's a whole load of political kind of stories running through it. But by stripping it down to um, a few isolated people on an isolated island in a magical sea, it becomes archetypes. Mm. Mm -hmm. You think um, it's very deliberate because there's, it's a, there is a fusion of... There are characters that are magical, like Ariel. There's Caliban, who's sort of odd, so, like sort of a living piece of soil and mm -hmm. sort of earth and native priest sort of colonialism as we would understand it really is that isn't that right to say well yeah yeah um leave the colonialism for a second um taking those two characters there's this ariel who is a spirit um and there's caliban who is a deformed slave it says in the in the stage directions um <clears throat> but they show you how complex shakespeare understands these archetypes are um because the beast is part of the human the angelic is part of the human too. Um, and these pressures and impulses, they're at war with each other. Um, so getting back to your original point, which was about power and the tempest, um, the dogma that we're finally given is you may have the greatest spirituality in the world. You may have the strongest access to magic, which is science we don't understand yet. Mm. Um, you may have humiliated and hypnotised and conquered your enemies. What do you do now? In Shakespeare, you say, I'm giving it up. So there's this fantastic famous last speech at the end of, of, the, of the Tempest where Prospero um, says that ev everything must dissolve. Um, everything is like a play. Um, everything is just atoms. <laughs> and that seems to me, that's the vision that's at the heart of Shakespeare, because however solid you are, however real the little stage or the little political um, uh, territory you control is, when it comes down to it, what matters is the spiritual level, which you may see as religious or you may see as a matter of conscience or you may see as psychological. Mm. Um, but you have to recognise that you are not who you think you are. And... In a play, that can be the first step. What do you mean that you're not who you think you are? Shakespeare tends to take, the, take his tragedies. Um, they're about ambition. Macbeth, a man who's a soldier and wants to um, become king. Um, it's about King Lear, a man who at the end of his life is a king. Um, it may be... Uh, Othello, um, an African who believes in love as the most important thing in the world. In those tragedies, what happens is that in some way, at some point, they're forced to understand that their, their passions and their human frailty destroy their self-image. So a king must find himself a beggar. Um, someone who believes that the world is his to divide and, and rule or bequeath to other people. That, that guy has got to become homeless. Um, he's got to experience insanity. If he does that, then he's on a path towards 
big question mark, see, because, it, because Shakespeare is not, is not telling you where to go. Um, he's not telling you where you can be. As a dramatist, he's holding the mirror up to nature, the famous phrase, to the, um, the complexity of human behaviour and the infinite fallibility of human judgment. And for that reason, um, he's offering you images of failure in order to make you think about alternatives in your own life. That archetypal journey that you're describing, a, a figure or hero or anti-hero with a self-image who over the course of the story has that self-image destroyed, seems redolent of the early parts of the Siddhartha and uh, re religious stories where we are confronted with, and, and, and to draw upon what you were saying about the Tempest, uh, we're confronted with the futility of material pursuits. We're confronted with the futility of ideological, or the frailty of ideological certainty that this experience will deliver us to impermanence. Do you think it's your academic awareness that The Tempest is likely his final play and therefore the final speech in The Tempest, which seems to be saying everything's just an illusion, nothing's real, things are temporarily held together, we're going to awaken from this dream into enlightenment without trying to give that a particular um, doctrinal bent, i.e. he don't give that over to Christianity, he doesn't give that over to monarchy. You, you said before one of the things that you loved about Shakespeare was that he, he seems not to be bound to any particular ideology that so it enabled him to play out the narrative of a, a, a young woman or a slave or a king or a murderer or a court, you know, like and, and like it's sort of quite well known that historical and geographical accuracy is not what you go to these plays for. You go there for a deeper truth. How certain are you uh, that, that what Shakespeare was saying was, or that what Shakespeare was talking about to a degree amidst so much else, was transcendent? Well, <clears throat> we said, like, Shakespeare writes the last play and it's called The Tempest. Well, we know it's not the last thing he wrote because he then collaborated with other people. But if you look, and this is where being an academic comes in and being able to read all of Shakespeare and get paid for it comes in. Um, if you... Um, get hold of a big book like the complete works of Shakespeare, which incidentally I got when my dad um, came home from a week at the TUC. Um, he was a trade unionist, um, but he sort of somehow glimmered the fact that I, um, at school, was sort of interested in, in, in plays. Um, he went and, and bought me this complete works of Shakespeare and I sat down to read it um, and I remember... Uh, reading King Lear while there was a football match on because it was a Wednesday. Um, and I was astonished by the fact that there was so much of this guy's work, um, yet every single paragraph seemed to be kind of rich and challenging. I don't think that's an ordinary reaction for a young boy with a football on in the background. I think you have a very particular relationship with that language. That, that's possible. Um, but, <laughs> but by reading so much of it, you do get a sense of an autobiographical journey or a biographical journey, which maybe isn't that conscious. Um, to begin with, he does seem to be a conventional writer of his time. Um, he writes big plays about history. Um, so to some extent, he's um, latching on to the fact that it's a patriotic time. We, we've just um, beat the Spaniards. Um, there's a queen on board and things are looking quite OK. So let's, let's cherish her um, and let's boost the, the, um, the current ideology 
and this sense of national national well-being. Gradually, as you move through uh, the end of the 1590s into the 1600s, the Queen's getting old, people are uh, becoming more, more desperate about the future. Um, there's social changes happening, which in, involves the creation of a new landless car, class. Um, there's terrible homelessness um, uh, at, at this time. Oh, is there? Yeah. Yeah, like um, now. Yes, like now, like now. There, there are people called sturdy beggars, sturdy beggars, um, and if they come into your parish, then your job is to whip them out. <laughs> the, the good traditional English way Same of as dealing now. with a social problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, social cleansing, mm. um, and and that that begins to come through into the plays themselves. Um, so as the plays become richer and more complex psychologically, they're also more outreaching, and uh, and shocked. I think socially. Well, when you get to the end of his career, and he's only in his 40s, so he's not that kind of ancient, um, there's a religious element, a spiritual element, a mythical element, which runs through a whole load of plays. Um, uh, their names, for those of you who've got um, your pens and papers out. Yes, because we should be learning. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest. They all are mythical plays. Um, they all deal with those um, ideas that you, you asked me about at the beginning weeks ago um, uh, about parenthood. Um, but it's not the parenthood that um, could be written up in a negative guidebook. Okay? If you read King Lear, then you know how not to bring up your children. Okay? Instead, they're about the mythical relationship between parents and children. Um, and they're about the life journey, which every single person takes as an individual and every single person is therefore to tossed backwards and forwards by tempests, um, flies between bliss and terror. But it's not a complete journey because you as an individual must find a partner. So love is part of the mythology. And you as a couple must create the future. So parenting becomes the mythology. So there's a, uh, there's a whole series of, of these mythical um, dramas which take place in a world which is partly real, um, partly familiar, because it's about family, um, mm. partly real because it's political, it's about running countries, but is also um, psychological and mythical and finally spiritual. So um, it's not just in The Tempest that Prospero, this, this Magus character, um, can summon up... Magus? Um, um, a Magus is a man who has political power, but also spiritual and intellectual knowledge. So it's a completeness that you're aiming for. Um, and Prospero is a character who aims for that completeness but cannot really have it because nobody can. Um, so in those plays, there are glimpses of the divine, literally the divine, where um, in, in the play Pericles, which is a wonderful drama... Um, what happens? It tells a life story. There's a guy called Pericles who's a prince of Tyre, um, who, at the beginning of the play, encounters sexuality. Um, he's um, presented as um, a folktale character um, who must answer a riddle in order to love and win a beautiful princess. Well, he does that, but he discovers that the riddle is that the, um, the father, King Antiochus, um, is actually abusing his daughter and making her live in an incestuous relationship with her father. Pericles is so shattered by that that he simply runs away 
He doesn't do what you're supposed to do. He doesn't confront the issue. Um, and he goes into a sort of um, reclusive semi-coma as he travels around the country and, and around the, the sea um, from town to town, encountering new groups of people. Um, until finally, um, finally in the first half of the play, um, it happens all over again, this repetition, because we were talking about repetition as obsession, oh. but this was repetition as learning. Yeah. Um, so again, he finds himself in a situation where there is a beautiful princess, um, and this time he has to compete in sort of um, uh, a tourney. Mm -hmm. um, uh, has to def defeat other champions physically in order to win her hand. Well, he wins her hand, um, they marry, they create a baby, and then there's a tempest and she dies. And we're halfway through the play. Oh, bloody hell, that's the <laughs> midpoint. Yeah. And again, he goes into a coma. This time, he literally um, will not speak. And for 12, 16 years, um, he just becomes um, a kind of a very rich maritime tramp. <laughs> oh, that old chestnut. The rich maritime <laughs> tramp. Yes. And he's told that his daughter is dead. The, the, the daughter is given to some other people to bring up. Well, it turns out that this is late Shakespeare. And without you really understanding at what point it happened, but maybe it was the point of the tempest, when nature seemed to be so opposed to everything human, hmm. um, when we were least able to achieve anything in our lives. Um, there's no point being clever, I can answer a, a riddle. There's no point being brave, I can beat a guy in, in, uh, in a chivalry competition. Um, when the storm comes, you're done for. Oh, and no. even that perfect dream of, um, of love and a child being born um, will be devastated. Well, that's only half the story. The sea is about tempests, but the sea is about currents. Ooh. And currents drive you apart and bring you back. So the end of that play will be when it turns out that nobody who is dead is dead. The, the, the wife is alive. And the daughter is alive, and they all discover each other again. And when they do, there's the most amazing thing. The music of the spheres happens. Because you, you're, all, you're always thinking with Shakespeare, um, there's some sort of mythical current or shape to these, this drama, but it's so full of detail that you can't really see what it is. Yes. But in these last plays, and especially in Pericles, you do. And um, the... The old man discovers that his daughter is alive. The daughter discovers that her father is alive. And they suddenly hear the music of the spheres. And it's one of Shakespeare's greatest moments because we in the audience can't hear it. The people around these two suffering individuals can't hear it. Only they can. Because they've been on a journey and the rest of us haven't. Exactly. So... Later in his career, you're, you're talking about divinity and you began that story with talking about glimpses of the divine. And, and you say that there's an argument that over the course of his career as a writer or philosopher or, or however would we term him, he is gradually distilling these ideas. There's a, a, a clarity is beginning to emerge. It, it seems to me evident that, that what's powerful is that he is fueled by an understanding of, of metaphysics, something that's very, very difficult to convey, but that 
the, the material world, the narrative itself, that which is evident can only tell us so much that we can't through materialism and through rationalism achieve contentment or perfection or completion. Like you said with that Pericles story, the first triumph leads to a period of unconsciousness or, or the coma. The second period, uh, the second triumph leads to unconsciousness and it's only through forces which cannot be contained or controlled. It's also through active innocence. Um, the bit mean? I left out of my story is that um, uh, the little daughter, she grows up, um, she finds herself confronted with sexuality too. She's um, kidnapped and put in a brothel. Um, but because Shakespeare is always potentially tragic, potentially comic, um, she's in this ghastly tragic situation. Um, it's beyond tragedies. It's, it's um, too obscene to be tragic. Um, but... She charms everybody by playing music, converts everybody who goes to the brothel into being chased, <laughs> which is a very funny scene. It's presented as, as, as comedy. Um, and because of her active embrace of the finest elements in life, um, and that image of music is always sort of um, symbolic, I think, of that, um, it enables her to go onto the ship where her um, psychotic father is waiting and she's the miracle that turns the key, that wakes him up. Okay, I put that really badly. Um, but it, it's presenting you um, a picture of human um, inadequacy, but there's always the possibility that if you dedicate yourself to purity of spirit and compassion for others, you can break free break through and help others. Um, so, so that's quite, like, that's a strong ideological perspective. That's, that is quite, a, that's a sort of a religious idea, Tony. That's eh? right. I mean, and it may be, because like everybody, when they read Shakespeare, um, if they read the complete works of Shakespeare or if they just to see one play or read one poem, they, they think they know what Shakespeare is. And mm. obviously I've been doing it for, for years, so I think I know what Shakespeare is. But I, I, I do actually believe that that's what you can see. You, see. you see that journey, and in those particularly powerful plays, you find them acted out with increasing clarity and simplicity. And I mentioned the, um, the poems there. Um, I think anybody who would like to um, dash off after hearing this um, podcast and think, um, where can I, when I, can I, where can I find um, Shakespeare in neat form? I would say, have a look at the poem called The Phoenix and the Turtle. Um, it's one of his late lyrics. It's a purely abstract piece, purely metaphysical, metaphorical, archetypal, about the marriage between um, a phoenix and a turtle dove. Um, and it's a statement about the fact that for Shakespeare, at least at certain times in his life, um, it's the relationship between individuals through love, romantic love, marital love, um, it, that breaks through. Um, it's about the paradox of two becoming one, two being one at the same time as they are two separate beings. Um, so The Phoenix and the Turtle is a beautiful piece of work. Um, it's very challenging in, 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 in ways um, that are kind of metaphysical. Um, but it does give you that statement um, that everybody is capable in their lives of achieving a miracle, and love is that miracle. Moving on, Tony, to Shakespeare and Shakespeare's, uh, I don't know, legacy, I suppose, because you've done a lot of work in, uh, I suppose, decolonising Shakespeare, should we say. You've uh, done a lot of work on, like, uh, Shakespeare and gender, Shakespeare and race. Tell us a bit about that stuff. Yeah, well, 
<clears throat> I've, I've, uh, I've written this book called Women as Hamlet, um, which is because what I do is I look at performances, I look at people's detailed perception, reception, um, how they channel Shakespeare in different cultures and different times. Um, and the Women as Hamlet book um, is about the way that um, the historical gender assumptions of his time have been challenged from the moment that he wrote. Um, so I picked on Hamlet because Hamlet is the greatest play in the world. That's in quotes, but it's true. Um, because it's about the growth of an individual personality, all the things that we've been sort of talking about um, in terms of what you can see play by play, year by year um, in Shakespeare's development, you can see in Hamlet as a play. Um, it's about someone who begins by not wanting to exist. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Hamlet's father has died. Um, we will soon learn that he's been murdered. Um, Hamlet doesn't know that. Um, but as a result of that, um, he says, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. He just wants to die himself. But he's dragged into life by the ghost of his father. Um, and step by step, we see him undergoing transformations. Okay, until the end, he dies. And we would like to say, because if it was any other playwright, we probably would be told what he has learned. Mm -hmm. um, through... What do you mean? It would be more explicit. Yeah. So Shakespeare don't offend his audience with, and this is what this means, because he's part of his genius is work out in your own consciousness. Exactly. Hamlet's last words are, the rest is silence. Okay, so we've all been waiting there for author's message, but there isn't one. Um, only the person who experiences complete obliteration knows the whole story of life and he's got nothing to say to us unless you you in those later plays you're going to move into this explicitly spiritual area but in hamlet you don't anyway um hamlet is a great great play um but it's got two really feeble little roles for women and what ophelia and gertrude are crap are they yeah because they're not given much to do apart from say oh hamlet and <laughs> go mad <laughs> and die in that oh, order. <laughs> That's right. Um, but within within a very short time, women were playing Hamlet. How, what do you mean short time? Um, the first Hamlet that I could find um, played by a woman um, is in the late 17th century. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what, was that 100 years then? Yeah, roughly, roughly. Um, and... That could only be possible because um, after the restoration period in the latter half of the 17th century, um, women were allowed on stage. They weren't at all before that. Mm. Um, but once they were allowed on stage, um, the paucity of the material that Shakespeare had written for them in some plays became quite clear. Um, and so um, it became quite common uh, for women to take on the role of Hamlet. Um, by the end of the 19th century, there were hundreds who'd done so. And we're not just talking about um, people in the um, uh, little gidding amateur dramatic society. We're talking about leading professional actresses around the world took on that part because they recognised that the things I was talking about just now um, are so important. Um, I, I, I talked to lots of actresses um, when I put that book together and they said people who played King, uh, who played um, Ophelia or who played um, Gertrude, the mother, they said, um, I really loved that play, but it was so frustrating being in it. I just wanted to speak those words. Mm. Several said that to me. I, I wanted to speak those words. 
They felt trapped in some yep. sort of one tiny aspect of the geometry of that play. That's right. And so um, what's happened is that at particular points in history when there are major social changes that affect the way that gender operates in a society, um, almost like um, a, a canary in a cage, um, an actress will say, I want to play that part, I will play that part. So it's happening now because there's loads going on. Yeah, yeah. It's happening now. Um, uh, Maxine Peake, Maxine Peake um, did it. Um, and just today they announced in the, in the newspapers that you're going to be able to stream Maxine Peake's performance of Hamlet. And she did it in um, Manchester, in the Manchester Exchange, a theatre in the round, just a couple of years ago, um, in a production um, where a lot of the roles were cross-cast too. Um, so um, it wasn't just one actress making the big personal statement, which is really, really important in itself. Um, it's a company which is saying we've got to um, embrace the feminine in these plays, but also politically, socially, we've got to give more opportunities for actresses um, to, um, to speak those words. Mm. So it, it's happening now. Um, and since I, I, I wrote the book, which a couple of years ago, um, I've, I've been talking to people um, in Australia, um, in Yugoslavia, um, in America, where, where recently, um, two years ago, they had the first black woman Hamlet on record. Um, it's about having access to roles that give you agency, but they also do more than that. Um, they allow you to alter the way audiences see the world. And you can, you can do that in any old play, um, but to do it in, in, um, in Shakespeare... Um, ensures that people understand that you're challenging old assumptions. I see. Because Shakespeare is like this open portal to the galaxy of what a human is. Brilliant, yeah. You need to see black actors, female actors play these parts, otherwise there is the heterogeneous assumption that what a human is is a white man. That's right. So since, since you mentioned the, um, the, the, the race thing there, um, the, the big, big, big kind of archetypal figure um, was the great singer and actor Paul Robeson. Well, um, when's that? Um, he was born at the end of the, of the beginning of the 20th century. Um, his father was an escaped slave. Bloody hell. Okay. Um, we're that close to history. Mm. Um, and he... Uh, his father was uh, uh, was a reverend and ensured that Paul, young Paul, had the best education possible. Um, as a result of that, he managed to get his, into a black college um, and then he got into a mixed-race uh, law school. Um, he was a huge success on the football field. Um, he's the guy who first sang uh, spirituals in the concert hall and made records. Um, and he's... Most, most people know about him um, from the musical Showboat where he sang Old Man River. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was an actor as well. Um, so many talents. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, as a result of that, he was invited to London uh, to play Othello in 1930 with, uh, in the Savoy Theatre. Um, he was allowed on stage to play Othello. He wasn't allowed in the restaurant. <laughs> you can't come to the after party for his own show absolutely and in fact um, some uh, one critic walked out 
um, of the first night uh, because some black people had actually been allowed to be members of the audience. I didn't come here to see black... Oh. <laughs> yeah, t totally. Um, and Paul Robeson... Um, was also politically very astute. So, in fact, he made a point of um, telling the prime minister about this. Um, so it became a public issue on... Who was the prime the minister then? That I do not know. When, when are we talking about? 19... 1930. 1930. Easy enough to find out using the internet. <laughs> okay, but so. anyway, the point is that... Um, he, yeah, he wasn't using the internet because he didn't have it in those days, but he was using the latest medium of radio. So uh, around the first night, Paul Robeson... Um, because he was already so famous for many things, um, gave a broadcast to people in America explaining that the reason why he was playing Othello in London was because he wouldn't be allowed to play it in New York. Um, and if he were to be seen to be kissing a white actress playing Desdemona, his wife, um, in New York, there would be severe trouble. So, <clears throat> and what he said attached to that was um, that Othello, who is this um, Moorish African general um, who's working for the um, army of Venice um, in the 16th century, um, but is regarded as basically subhuman because of his ethnicity, um, he says that the situation um, that this character Othello has, which is going to end in, in, in death and disaster, his victimization. Um, the situation of Othello destroyed in the 16th century in Italy is exactly the same as that of any person of colour on the streets of America now. So, 1930, number one, Paul Robeson, black actor, is playing a part up until then played by white actors in makeup. So he's claiming to have a real physical presence on the stage. And number two, he's saying in the process that the plays that William Shakespeare wrote all those hundreds of years ago, insofar as they are true, are true about the injustices um, of today. And we're going to use these plays um, to make sure we're not just seen on the stage physically in the Savoy Theatre, we're going to be seen on the world stage. And, OK, you in America are not going to come, but you now know about it from the radio. He politicised that content and activated it. This content that was there latent, he was able to utilise. And I suppose that's brilliant activism as well as brilliant art and there's definitely a crossover. How do you see Shakespeare being used in that way these days? Well, to be focused purely on the, on the um, race-ethnicity aspect, um, you mentioned right at the start, um, we've had a project um, at Warwick University where I teach, um, which is called um, Multicultural Shakespeare, and it's a study of black and Asian performers since Paul Robeson's day um, working in Shakespeare. Um, and so we put, to get, put together a big database um, of uh, as many of those performances as we've managed to trace with as much information about the performers, um, directors um, and other black and Asian artists who've been involved in it. Um, and we uh, put together the, um, the database and um, about two years ago, we published the results, um, which showed that, number one, um, and, and this was why I did it in the first place, um, there was a great history of um, people of colour playing Shakespeare in this country, which is hardly known. Mm -hmm. Number two, there's a glass ceiling. 
um, writing two years ago, we could say that there had not been a, uh, a black Hamlet in this country. Wow. Um, uh, there had not been um, a black, say, Coriolanus. P pick a, a, a great role. And you'll find that even though with, um, with immigration um, going right back to the 1940s in this country, okay, um, and with generations coming through and um, finding their way into the entertainment industries isn't, isn't everything else, um, although there was a big body of great talent, they weren't being given access to the really significant roles. Um, the reason for doing this was that um, Shakespeare is the symbol of British culture that everyone can understand. I see. Um, and if you, if you have access to that, then you have access to something at the core of our society. So if you don't, then you don't have access. Your own interest in Shakespeare is deeply political then because you're continually pushing to ensure that access is given and that what Shakespeare represents and therefore what Britain represents or what power represents is challenged and altered in, in, in I suppose, in a more equal and inclusive way. Yeah, yeah. Because why? What, why does it matter or why yeah, do why I do it? Why does it matter to you? Why this personal crusade when potentially you could be, gosh, I suppose there's one way of dealing with Shakespeare that would be, right, what does this play mean? What's the best performance of it? What's the best way of delivering that line? What themes are there? That, you know, to, it's a... Is it not an abstraction to politicise it? Do you see that as a continuation of the content? It's the content. It's the content. Um, <clears throat> uh, can I read you a speech which yeah. I just happen to have brought with me? Please. OK. Um, obviously, I, I said a bit ago that um, what I do with Shakespeare or what I see Shakespeare as being about um, is, to some extent, um, accidental. It's me. And... Um, the whole point about um, so many Shakespeare plays is that they all say farewell to the audience at the end and they ask for applause. But they're, they're saying, OK, we've had a show. We're all in a state of solidarity with the audience. But actually, we're not the audience, the collective being. We are lots of individuals. And you will all see what you've just seen in a different way. And you will think about it differently when you go home. So my view of Shakespeare is purely me. And um, Shakespeare is mediated, um, mediated through the movies that you've seen or based on Shakespeare, like that excellent Tempest. Very um, good. Or, or you, the production that you saw on, uh, on, on Beam Down um, from the National Theatre. Um, <clears throat> and it's mediated through editors, um, editions. Um, everybody gets in the way of Shakespeare. There is, however... One speech by Shakespeare, written in his own hand. Um, and that's a speech which is in the British Library. Um, it's from a play that was um, never performed in his time um, called Thomas More. Um, it's not a great statement by him because it's a play that he wrote in collaboration with lots of other people. Um, but miraculously, um, one speech has survived in his handwriting. It's wow. the only one. How do we know? Well, that, that's good. Um, I'm glad you say that because that's your job to interrogate um, and right. to destroy uh, myths. <laughs> <laughs> and to some extent, um, we know that he wrote it because we know he was given the job of working on this particular script. Um, and through looking at his handwriting, looking at the spelling, looking at the imagery, um, scholars have deduced that it must be him. Great. But of course, um, that 
is a, in a bit of a circular argument um, because to say um, this is like Shakespeare, therefore Shakespeare must have written it, is wouldn't hold up in a court of law, I think, nowadays. But anyway, um, pretty well 99% of Shakespeare scholars like me um, would agree that he wrote this. Great. And this is what it's about. Um, it's, a, it's a play about Sir Thomas More, who was the, um, uh, I think, Chancellor um, in Henry VIII's day. And there was a riot against immigrants. And he was sent out to quell the riot. And this is the speech... Um, which I would read out, though I think it would be better if you did. No, you um, did it. <laughs> I sh- I'm going to show off. I need no encouragement. OK. So this is Thomas More, and he's addressing this, this group of um, uh, xenophobic, racist rioters in London. And the, he calls them strangers. OK, they're, they're, you know, um, do we call them um, uh, refugees? Do we call them migrants? Um, the, the vocabulary you use will colour the way people understand who they are. And in this case, they're strangers. You'll put down strangers, kill them, cut their throats, possess their houses. Alas, alas, say, say now the king should banish you. Whither would you go? What country, by the nature of your error, should give you harbour? Go you to France? or Flanders, to any German province, Spain or Portugal, nay, anywhere that not adheres to England, why, you must need be strangers. Would you be pleased to find a nation of such barbarous temper that breaking out in hideous violence would not afford you an abode on earth, wet their detested knives against your throats, spurn you like dogs, and like as if that God owed not nor made not you? What would you think? to be used thus. This is the strangest case. And this, your mountainish inhumanity. So, I might get struck out of the um, Shakespeare Experts Club um, for saying the fact that this was probably written by Shakespeare in his own handwriting, and it's the only speech by Shakespeare that has survived in that form, is irrelevant. But um, it's an example of the way that... a uh, a piece of text, a piece of writing, a piece of dramatic writing, um, could be very controversial in its time. It was censored and not performed. Really? Yeah. Um, the, um, the, uh, the, the censor, um, Mr Tilney, wrote, leave out the insurrection wholly and the cause thereof, and not otherwise at your own perils. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. He's so getting it may- right in with a bit of censorship. Don't say that bit. That's encouraging people yeah. to be nice. Yeah. So m- maybe Shakespeare just did that because someone said, "Oh, can you write this speech?" And he said, "Oh, I'll knock it off. All right." Um, or it may be that it was a speech he, he felt passionately about. But I think we have a right to feel passionately about it now, and to say that um, the one occasion when Shakespeare does appear to be um, speaking directly about society, about intolerance. Um, about xenophobic tendencies. Um, he's doing it in those terms which are so true to us now. Um, when you said right at the start, um, what did I mean when I said that Shakespeare te- encourages us to realise that we're not who we think we, they are? Mm. Mm-hmm. That's what the speech is about. It's saying to um, the, the honest London citizens of the 16th century, um, OK, well, put yourself in their shoes. Yes. And think what a disgusting life you will lead and 
hold up the mirror to yourself. In a way, this is the role of the shaman, is that the yeah. Shakespeare can fall into the perspective of sort of almost anything and present so many views. And in this case, it invites us to look at what we consider to be objectively true. I am English, that is alien, this is otherness. And that, that, that those categories can continually shift just by moving to another place. You are, you are now the stranger, the stranger is you. It's only circumstance, the temporal, that presents what seems to you to be objective. So someone that has access to you know, multivalence can say, no, 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 nothing is real, nothing is real. And it seems that that, in the end becomes his conclusion. Now, this evidently, um, there is power in this writing because at its time it was censored. And to touch again on what you said about, is it Paul Robeson? Um, I I know from the research that Gareth did with you that there's a story about the CIA attempting Mm -hmm. to censure, like, you know, 500 years later, the the, uh, Paul Robeson's... Uh, experiences performing Shakespeare. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, because, um, like I said earlier on, um, uh, he wasn't content to do Shakespeare because it's a great play. Um, He did it because he saw it as a great role um, for a black performer. And beyond that, he saw it as a great indictment of racial attitudes. This is 1930. Um, And he's a newcomer to classical theatre. And he's a stranger in the world of British classical drama, but he goes in there. Well, that's easy. Um, He could have become the next Martin Luther King. Well, the first Martin Luther King. Um, And if he had... um, (laughs) You're not even called Martin Luther King. It'll make sense in 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in fact, when it came to it, Martin Luther King um, in the 50s didn't want to be um, in any way grouped with the name of Paul Robeson because Paul Robeson was also a socialist. Oh. Um, And being um, a socialist in the 1930s means that you are um, anti-fascist, um, it means you're pro-Russian revolution. Mm. Um, it means that you're a dirty communist, according to the FBI in, in, in America. Um, and so they were very um, concerned to silence Robeson. Um, it's the time of McCarthyism, mm. um, where Robeson actually appeared before the McCarthy committee and denounced them as anti-Americans, as, as un-Americans. He wow. denounced them as un-Americans. Um, extraordinary. Uh, his wife, by the way, did the same thing, and she was she was brilliant too. Do you think they'd have enough bloody problems without going up against <laughs> McCarthyism? Yeah, exactly. Um, and he was given many opportunities to um, to narrow his focus, to shut up on the subjects that were um, so contentious. Um, but he wouldn't. Uh, so he was blacklisted. Um, and <laughs> the irony. Yeah. He was okay, big deal. <laughs> yeah. So we're uh, on that list. <laughs> so he couldn't perform in America. Um, all his recording co- uh, contracts were abolished. Oh God! Um, but that's okay because he's an international celebrity. International celebrity. He's also the black. The, the, he's also the first black film star. He made great films um, in the nineteen thirties. Um, so he could easily come to another country like um, England or Wales um, or France um, and perform here. And so they took his passport away. So he can't perform in America, he can't perform abroad. Um, And um, he found extraordinary ways of getting around that. 
Um, he gave a concert, for instance, on the American side of the Canadian border to Canadians. Mm. He did that as an annual thing. Um, he used the new power of the, um, of the telephone. They, they, they'd laid a, um, an Atlantic telephone cable in the 50s. And as a result of that, he was able to um, give concerts from his flat in New York um, to St Pancras Town Hall. <laughs> and uh, we did an exhibition about that and I, I, and I displayed um, the, the phone bill. Oh. <laughs> OK. How much? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there was a dispute over the, over the phone bill. They tried to make it so expensive he couldn't afford to do it. But trade unionists in London um, uh, came up with the cash. So it could happen. So um, it's even the case um, that some people, including me, would argue um, that uh, ultimately at the end of the 50s, um, the CIA um, decided that because these um, conventional censorship techniques weren't working, mm -hmm, because he was determined to find ways of um, surmounting censorship. Um, for instance, uh, Yes, he wasn't allowed to um, to work with the with the American um, record companies, so he founded his own company, Othello Records, mm -hmm. um, which published uh, his records. Uh, his uh, it carried his music, but also that of people like Pete Seeger, um, people on on the left, people who were going to be the the hippies in ten years, wow. twenty years time. Um, uh, it's impossible to imagine that ever such a man existed, but he did. Because of his bravery. Yeah, his determination, um, his um, absolute commitment and his, de his determination not to compromise. So anyway, um, finally, um, his um, passport was given back to him because it was um, ruled unconstitutional to take a person's passport away for political purposes. Um, so he um, left America at the end of the 50s and came back to Europe um, to Russia, for instance. And in Russia, his life changed. Um, he'd already um, performed Othello here in England at Stratford-on-Avon at the age of 60. Um, and he'd already um, been in on the ground floor of the Notting Hill Carnival. Wow. He was a sponsor for the first, very first one. Um, he went to um, Moscow uh, where he was hugely popular, and was planning to go to Cuba when he was taken extremely ill. And his son, um, Paul Robeson Jr., um, believed that he was um, experimented on by the CIA using new mind-bending drugs. Um, he was taken instantly ill, Paul Robeson, um, and he became profoundly mentally unwell for the rest of his life. Oh, God. He was physically destroyed because his mind um, couldn't make his whole system work anymore. Anyway, um, his son in Moscow um, was in Paul Robeson's um, hotel room after he'd gone into hospital, um, and he had this suicidal compulsion to throw himself out the window. So that convinced him that the CIA were behind the drugs. Um, so that convinced him that it was a drug-induced psychosis mm. and that the CIA were behind it because we know that they had plans to do that sort of thing um, to, um, uh, to Castro. Mm. Well, the, the clincher for me is that um, 
Paul Robeson was about to go by air from Moscow to Cuba as part of his world tour. And he He's, was timed like, to... If your CIA's after you, you <laughs> might want to not go on a tour that includes Moscow, <laughs> Havana. That's it. He's an antagonistic bloke, wasn't he? Yeah, as I say, that, that, that's why it's impossible to imagine that ever, ever such a person existed. And especially because... Um, he did not know, but the CIA probably did, that when he got to Moscow, so when he got to Cuba, um, the Bay of Pigs was scheduled. Bloody hell. So I'm, I'm pretty convinced um, all the evidence has been redacted. Oh, really? That, that we know about. Um, I, I spent a, a, a six months going through um, FBI files that you can get on the internet. Um, and it's quite clear. That, that it says um, the health of... Paul Robeson is an issue, and then pages and pages of nothing but black. Um, so I'm convinced that the one thing they did not want would be that um, Paul Robeson, uh, a, a fierce, ferocious critic of American foreign policy, would be in Cuba when they invaded it. Mm. Um, and that, that would be the point at which censorship and oppressive um, uh, behaviour decide, decides it's not enough. Shakespeare then has power in it, yes. a great deal of power. I suppose it has, a, 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 it's a, a inconceivably varied well of human experience with recognisable themes that are, seem in many senses to talk about the futility of power mm. in a way the people that were yeah. persecuting uh, Paul Robeson would have done well to sort of read some of those plays and go, hold on a minute, this, <laughs> this system we're trying to prop up mm -hmm. is pointless, look, it's all temporary, let's just let him off. Uh, so, um, in a way, uh, how, how do you see this resource we have, this sort of almost, it's, it's, I suppose, it, I mean, it's obviously a unique resource that we have a... a, a an artistic work of such potency that is owned, I suppose, by the English language, not necessarily by the Englishness itself. It's like, how do how would do you envisage it being utilised to continue the debate around power and how power is shared? What are what do you see your obligations as as a as a Shakespeare expert? You called yourself that, and you beat your chest as you said it. Uh, and uh, and uh, and how can other people? I, I, I also made invisible quotation marks in the air at the same time. You did that. There's a lot of weird things went on there for a man who's so interested in language. It was like Marcel Marceau across the table. Now, um, how can we? How can those of us that are interested in power utilize Shakespeare? What What would you like to see happen? Well, and what are you going to do? The, the responsibility is to young people. Um, it's important that whether you're, um, you're a South Asian kid in Leicester, um, whether you're a kid with parents who came from Ghana um, and you live in Glasgow, um, whether you're a kid... Um, in Poland, it's, it's, it's really important that these plays touch you directly when your views of life are being formulated. Um, it's about getting to hear the stories and to see the stories acted out. It's about getting to speak the words. Okay, um, mm -hmm. that, That's really what it's about, the empowerment that comes through language. 
if if Shakespeare had just given us the stories in the form that I've kind of paraphrased them, um, they would have been crap and, and would have been forgotten. Um, but Shakespeare... He just stood up and gone, right, it's this bloke, right? And uh, he's a bit worried about it. So. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's exactly what I said, and I'm really ashamed of it, and I hope you obliterate the tape. <laughs> You've done a wonderful job of distilling Shakespeare. Come on. Go on it's but, important that they get but, the essence. Yeah, Is that yeah. what you're saying? Um, one, one thing, for instance, that when we've been talking to um, people with Asian um, family backgrounds about Shakespeare, um, uh, it's often said to me, um, it's families where more than one language is spoken at home that really respond instantly and most richly to Shakespeare's language. Because um, if, you, if your language sense is being stretched all the time, um, you're aware of how ample it can be. And so you aren't um, deterred by the weirdness, the opaqueness, the backwardness of Shakespeare's mm. Elizabethan language. It's another possible way of looking at life, of, of expressing yourself. Um, so there's something very, very multicultural about the, the, the words themselves in that sense. Um, I see, that, because they're abstract even from contemporary English speakers, so we're yeah. levels. Yeah, and it's so much poetry. Mm. Um, uh, Shakespeare will always use an image if he can, rather than give you a prosaic sentence. Um, and imagery uh, works on your imagination. Um, in ways that you're not aware of, and obviously that Shakespeare would never have dreamt. Um, but if you can give young people that, then it's, about, it's part of the weaponry that they need to get through being young. Um, and hopefully um, it's part of their sense of potential identity. You see, what, you, you said in, in a way there's something of a shaman about Shakespeare. Um, I actually do think that. But I, I, I would be thrown out of the um, uh, Shakespeare Experts Club if I said that uh, to many people. Um, what it's it is is restrictive in that club, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> you should see them. My <laughs> God, those penguin suits. But he's an actor. Mm. Shakespeare is an actor and a playwright. Um, his job as an actor is to um, embody different people. Yes. His job as a playwright is to make the panorama as complex and diverse as possible. So um, Shakespeare is one of those writers who, because he's a playwright, is always disagreeing with himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we are so lucky to have him as our national bard, um, as opposed to some great novelist like Tolstoy, um, who is ultimately bound to be dogmatic at some point because the narrator's voice will always interfere um, with the accuracy of what he's telling you. I see. But, but Shakespeare is never in that situation. Because the form is about story and the story is populated by character and the characters must have opposition, so you must have multivalence, whereas yeah, in a narrative, for, uh, narrative form such as the novel, y as you say, the narrator has dominion. So you say it's important for people to inhabit these parts, to speak the words, because it's kind of like I heard Alan Moore once say about like spells and language, mm. that language will go to work on you. And when we did that, week of we did a work a week of workshops with the National Theatre and the brilliant director Ian Rickson where I read different monologues and different scenes it what I found is it's like uh like language is literally a code and the code in the hands of a, a master like Shakespeare and illuminated by an expert such as yourself and a director as brilliant as Ian that, that you I felt like when doing Caliban and Prospero 
arguing about the change of their relationship since Prospero had been on the island a while and like he weren't that nice to Caliban anymore. I felt the adolescent me breathed back in a life mm. with that sort of yeah. spurned sense of rage. Or when you work through the great soliloquies of Hamlet, you are forced into unexamined corners of the mind, forced to confront aspects of your consciousness that if the language for it doesn't exist then the phenomena itself is perhaps doesn't, you know, it's ignored or doesn't exist. If it's not illuminated, if there's no language for it, what is it? You know, only the things that there are words for are being said. That's so great. Because, um, like, take Hamlet. Um, ne- nearly all um, of Hamlet's famous soliloquies, which are so famous, to be or not to be or whatever, um, they nearly all, um, if you go back to the uh, earliest text, begin with O. Oh. It's an exclamation mark. Wow. Okay. Um how do you say, oh, the only way you can do that is to actually capture that emotion, um, uh, whether you're on stage saying it or whether you're uh, sitting at home reading it. Um, it's a point of contact between you and that text. Mm-hmm. There's something which is not fully controlled and defined and limited. That's pretty beautiful because it's not like, yeah, because if it starts with the word potato you've got to go oh he's talking about potatoes here i get it i know those um but like o is like it's an open sound it's an exclamation and you've got to go to work on yourself psychologically it's a bit like a springboard uh the the the, the bars um you 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 know you're going to be in the um in the water okay and you've got to swim in a certain way or else you'll sink um but how do you get there o will take you there so it's it's really saying an actor writing can can do this. And he's saying, collaborate, give me a bit of you, and then I'll give you the words. So you were not a precious guy. That's what you like about him as well, isn't it? The Shakespeare is not precious. You said it's like robust. You, mm. can, you can go, you know, like you can't be cons- like being conservative with Shakespeare is to miss the point. So sort of go, oh no, Shakespeare's got to be some blonde bloke. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, Hamlet rather has got to be some blonde bloke. Mm. It's not like Christianity where eventually the iconic figure will morph into the convenient form to tell the story of who is powerful. Shakespeare, because of the diversity within the text, because of the conflict within the story, stories is open to no we'll have a woman do it no we'll have someone from poland do it no we'll have you know like it's it's a good way of illustrating what power is and how power behaves and built into it are invitations for you as an individual beyond how you yourself are contextualized through your nationality your age your religion your gender Find your essential humanity, because that's another thing that is found through the diversity of these texts. Is we all know what jealousy is, mm-hmm. we all know what obsession is, we all know what loneliness is, heartbreak, abandonment, rejection, and those things supersede, transcend, go around and flood our the things we cling to, the things we cling to in the storm. I, absolutely. Um, I think it's really great that he began um, to be successful as a poet writing the sonnets and so forth. Um, but it's the plays that everyone thinks of um, because plays are public art and performance is a sharing process. And if you don't mind me embarrassing you, when you were working on the National Theatre uh, Studio project um, and you did a performance... Um, as you've described, um, the, high, the, the, the high point of it was the end. When you gave that Prospero speech, 
which is about the end of things, um, to a member of the audience, a, a kid um, who was sitting there with his arms folded most of the time, determined not to be impressed. Um, the fact that you passed on the, the, the words and the speaking role to him was, for me, totally brilliant and totally Shakespearean, because that's the point of it. It's, it's that handing on. Um, it's a record... Well, that, 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 that last speech in The Tempest is... Um, uh, Prospero says, um, if you from par for, as you from sins would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Mm -hmm. So there's this character who could control the waves and the winds and, me and people's minds. He can hypnotise them with a charm. Um, he's only an actor now, and he's nothing. And unless we in the audience choose to forgive his weakness. But why should we do that? Because we all need to have our weaknesses forgiven. As you from sins would pardon be. Give me, a, give me some applause. So it's, it's holding that mirror up to nature, which I keep on going back to because it's such a wonderful image for what culture should do. Um, hold the mirror at an angle and we see things in a way we aren't, aren't used to hold it up straight to our faces, and we're forced to see ourselves. And that may be reassuring, um, but hopefully what's been spoken about, what's been acted out in a play like a, a Shakespeare um, tragedy, um, it's forced us to look that much... It's forced us to look more closely. That's beautiful, yes. It's presenting us with truth, or as close to truth as it's plausible for us ever to go mm. with mere words as mere humans. Tony, that's a very beautiful story. Thank you very much for sharing your experiences with Shakespeare with us today. We've learned more, seeing how Shakespeare can be used as a, a tool for social activism, as a, a, a vessel for history because, there, because of its, the multifaceted nature of the work. There, there is a kind of alchemy. There are spells within it. Thank you very much for the education. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers, Tony. This show was sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon. Great present for you or for someone you know already or a stranger. You can also get the audio book on Audible. That way you could listen to me saying more things. Finally, if you like this show, subscribe to it and review it on iTunes or wherever you get it. Give it five stars. Help us rocket up those charts. We're very grateful to you. Thank you very much.